You are listening to the Ethereum 2.0 Implementers Call, recorded on August 30th, 2008. If you would like to support the show, head over to anchor.fm slash ethereum foundation and donate to either the Bitcoin or Ethereum address listed on the page. Thank you and enjoy. Everyone has the agenda. Um, let me pull it up. Uh, okay, cool. So we'll do things, the uh, normal two things, we'll do client updates and then research updates and then get into the stuff for this week. Um, who wants to start on client updates? How about Harmony? Um, previous two weeks, uh, we've been working on block processing and block proposer. Um, we have a solo node so far, so means that it's able to propose blocks and process that, them. Uh, everything is stored on disk, so it, the state is preserved between the restarts. Uh, but for now, uh, it has it has a placeholders for state transition and for fork choice rule. Yep, and uh, the next steps uh, we are going to work on is uh, our state transition and attestation. So uh, what I am personally doing now is trying to understand the state transition and the things that uh, happens around it. Because um, uh, I'm not uh, fond of uh, the design of state that is suggested in the POC. And uh, maybe next week I'll try to outline something and so we can discuss it. Uh, for example, I think that uh, it's pretty straightforward to use a um, Merkle tree for to, to store validator set and uh, so forth. But to make this outline, uh, I need some time to understand everything that is happening around state transition. So that's where we are. Great, thank you. Um, who's next? Hey Danny, uh, we can go next to Prismatic Labs. So we, we basically finished uh, a bunch of the different PRs that were aligning our repo with the latest 2.1 spec. Um, finished all the processing attestation system. Um, we created basically the entire infrastructure for applying the fork choice rule and updating the head. So we do, we know we process incoming blocks, um, you know, we, we store them and then we apply a fork choice rule and we basically keep uh, an in-memory kind of cache of the, of the latest process block, of the unprocessed block hashes and just go through them and update the head when we receive a new block. 
Um, at the moment, we're basically wrapping up uh, initial chain sync. So I'm getting you know two nodes to actually you know one that advances the chain, another one that starts from scratch to get up to the same height, um, or at least the same slot. And then we are basically working right now on the whole proposer uh, tester interactions to make sure that once a proposer is assigned on the slot, uh, it's able to receive attestations via P2P from a testers. And right now, you know, we're thinking about how we're going to do that. We're probably just going to have one big shard as the network, and and essentially just get the proposal the proposer responsibility fully implemented. <clears throat> um, um, yeah, that's basically it. Cool. And by one big shard, you mean in terms of the uh, P2P layer? Yeah, yeah. For the for the validators interacting with each other. Gotcha. Sorry, guys. Uh, a quick question: Do you use the same state structure that is described in POC in the spec? Y yes, we are. We try to we try to be as aligned with the spec as we can. Okay. Okay. I see. Cool. Thank you. Um, how about somebody from uh, Lodestar? Um, so on our end, uh, progress has been slow and steady. I've been quite busy at, at work. Um, we're starting to implement the state transition functions and trying to understand everything around that. Um, also trying to get the gossip swap implementation started. Um, and I also have several questions regarding um, the random beacon implementations in community selection that we'll go into later. Um, but in terms of updates, that's it. Cool. Um, status, Nimbus? Yes, so uh, we finished uh, multi-signature BLS uh, implementation. And uh, now um, I've also uh, implemented like 80% of uh, the per block uh, processing. Uh, what is left is what is in to do in the Casper sharding spec. And uh, while waiting for this to do, I started to implement the uh, Ghost uh, RPG, uh, no IMD uh, protocol. And so, and I provided the, some feedback to the uh, testing uh, procedures so, so that it's best for for us um, uh, in the um, BLS multi-signature now in uh, NIM. Uh, so if needed, we can also export it uh, as a C uh, library, for example. Cool. And um, curious, are you using like a common test infrastructure or test cases from the REST implementation? Uh, so this is a kind of, um, it's a bit uh, tricky because um, we didn't find uh, like uh, serialization test vectors to compare to. So um, hopefully we can agree on uh, some. Uh, I can share the, the notes on the implementation because uh, so that everyone uh, agrees on uh, how to serialize uh, stuff. Right, yeah, as we, as we have more implementations of this curve, I think we're gonna definitely need to come around a standard. So that's good. Um, 
Great, thanks. How about um, Pegasus? Yes. So on, on our side, we've been working on onboarding. As you know, we're hiring and we have new people, and new people will be arriving next month as well. And we started to look in details at uh, Casper, uh, including its last version. And we're going to formalize uh, all this, and likely we'll have some uh, some questions or feedback uh, next week or the week after. And that's it for us. Cool, thanks. Um, how about uh, Lighthouse? Uh, yeah, yeah, we've been um, working to kind of bootstrap the project and get the get some team resources aligned. Uh, we've also been working uh, on some research for P2P serialization. We'll talk about later. Um, We've been um, eyeing out the state transition stuff pretty hard, just trying to figure out, you know, what the motivations behind that and if it's efficient. Um, and next up, uh, I think uh, the next thing for us is just to start pushing blocks around the network. Uh, we're just going to pick a serialization format and just run with it for now. Uh, that's it for us. Cool. Thank you. Uh, did I miss any of the uh, client teams? I don't think so. Um, Let's move towards research. We can start with, um, is there any updates from the EWASM team? Um, yeah, if you, if you can hear me. So we yeah. have in the last, last three weeks worked really hard on the testnet we are trying to launch, uh, and that's going really well. Um, and then <clears throat> the next step is that we would like to it's kind of like a project between the UASM slash JS team. We would like to, in the next two months, spend some time on do some kind of um, simulation of execution engine um, on charting, where we take the, the lower layers, the black box, <clears throat> so all the, the block ordering, anything coming in, um, that's just a given. And we are trying to do some kind of um, execution engine simulation on top of that, which may be EWASM, maybe just EVM for the time being, um, but that's like the next step. Cool. Sounds good. Um, any other, I know there's plenty of research updates. I know there's work on P2P. Uh, Justin's here with us as well. Does anybody want to give an update? Um, hello. Um, on the on sharding P2P POC, uh, we Last week, we did a kind of validation with the validator in Gossessa. And we also introduced the communication between Python and Go. So the contents can be sent from Go to Python and validated. And the result can be written back to the Go. And also, we can send comments from Python to Go. And they are um, done through the gRPC. And it can be changed in to the other mechanisms like IP, um, the pipe or other IPC in the future. And we also used another tracer checker and added more tracing. And our to-do uh, in the next week and uh, in the next two weeks will be, uh, we will survey more about the connection manager in Gossetsa and We'll try to introduce the reputations um, system and we'll survey the simulator for Gossessa. And that's our update. Thank you. Great, thank you. 
Um, Yannick, do you have anything from your side of the simulations? Um, not really, uh, just uh, general progress, I'd say. Uh, I finished implementation of uh, GossipSub and also of this push-pull pro uh, push protocol, um, which uh, I described in, in an E3 search post a couple of weeks ago, I think. Um, but no real results yet. I'm about to um, limit the bandwidth of all nodes and implement um, and actually uh, give packets a, a size so that I can um, measure propagation times and not only hop counts. And um, then I should get, yeah, I hope to have some results in two weeks. Next call. Excellent. Uh, Justin, anything on your front? Uh, yes, so um, I've been, uh, sorry, just, yeah, I, I've basically continued uh, doing uh, research on the, the VDF and the randomness beacon. So I think last time I, I joined was actually a month ago, and that was possibly before the, uh, the VDF day in, in Stanford, where we invited a bunch of uh, VDF experts. Um, generally, I'd say this event went very well. Um, some new results were found during that day just by having uh, different people in the room and, and sharing our open problems. In particular, we have uh, a new way of aggregating the proofs of VDFs for the, the construction that we're looking into called the, 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 by uh, Benjamin Wasolowski. So you can take uh, two VDF proofs uh, with different inputs and aggregate them into single proof. That's, that's very nice. Uh, the other thing which was nice is uh, there's a new way of doing uh, watermarking. Uh, and by watermarking, I mean um, uh, tagging the proof to a specific um, uh, public key so that uh, you can do uh, incentivization and give a reward to a specific key. Um, Another thing that happened during that event is that um, Dan Bonet told me and encouraged me to look into um, the idea of a, an R, a ceremony to build uh, the RSA modulus. So in a similar way that uh, Zcash uh, had this, this trusted setup and a, and a ceremony where they had, I think, over, over 100 participants. And if you have at least one participant that acts honestly, then, then the whole thing is secure. So I, I will be looking into the, the, the viability of, of this approach uh, for, for RSA. And so the idea is you have you know, a few hundred participants and if at least one of them acts honestly, the end result is a 2000 bit RSA modulus for which no one knows the factorization. And, and it's important that no one knows this factorization so that the, uh, the VDF scheme that we're looking into is, is secure. Um, I guess another thing that happened during that day is that we had uh, people from uh, IPFS and, and Chia uh, come in. Um, it, it's looking like IPFS more and more wants to have a random beacon, uh, just like Ethereum, for their blockchain. Uh, and they're, they're looking at you know, the, the same uh, VDF that, that we are. So it's looking more and more likely that, that we will collaborate with them, which is good because we want to build a VDF ASIC and, and those can be quite expensive if you, if you use um, you know, state-of-the-art process technologies. So collaborating there means we can 
collaborate financially and also in terms of um, you know, uh, engineering resources. One of the, the things that I guess, one of the rabbit holes that, that you know, is we've gone down pretty far um, is uh, an approach to build uh, RSA moduli trustlessly. So uh, the, the idea basically is that if you pick uh, a 4,000 bit number, let's say at random, and you, you make sure that it has no small uh, prime factorizations, otherwise you kind of, you trash it and you, you pick another uh, random number, 4,000 bit random number. Um, then with, with some reasonably high probability, something like 60 or 70%, um, this, this random number will be safe to use as an RSA modulus. And, and what I mean by safe to use is that there's a, a 2000 bit component of this, um, of this random number, which is unfactorizable. So is a product of at least two large enough primes. So they cannot be factored. And so if we pick enough of these random numbers, um, then at, with very high probability, none of them will be completely factorizable. And so long as they're not completely factorizable, the, the scheme um, is, is, is secure. So that gives us a, a nice way of having a, a trustless setup for the, the VDF. Um, so, the main downside, sorry? Oh, I was gonna say, and so in that, in that case, you do you have to run multiple VDFs at once? Yes, exactly. So basically your, your high level VDF is made out of these mini VDFs, which are run in parallel. And for, you know, what you do is that you, you concatenate the outputs and you concatenate the proofs and each proof must verify um, uh, at the same time. And the, the main downside here is that uh, the, you don't, you, your, your proof sizes and your outputs are, are not optimal in terms of size. So each, uh, the output and the proof per VDF output would be on the order of 50 kilobits. So that's uh, about eight kilobytes. Um, so, you know, that, 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 that is totally workable, uh, but it, it's, it's slightly suboptimal. And the other worry is that, um, you know, we'd need, we need quite a few of these, um, of these moduli, you know, on the order of 10 or 20. And so if we were to build an ASIC, um, we might have actually to build, to have several ASICs on the same board and that might start consuming lots of power, uh, which, which not, might not scale very well, but you know, this is still part of the, um, the feasibility study that I'm, that, I'm, that I'm doing right now. Right, and so it doesn't scale poorly in the sense that the whole world's going to start running them and use tons and tons of energy, but it doesn't scale well in the sense that it's hard for, you know, a, a hobbyist or altruistic participant to just, like, get a setup and, and run. Right, exactly. So right now we're looking, if we want to build, like, a, a totally optimal... 4,000 bit multiplier, modular multiplier, we're looking at roughly on the order of 10 watts. Um, so if you would have, you know, 10 of them or that, that's 100 watts, which, you know, is, is less than a, you know, some graphics cards. Um, so it's, it's definitely a small amount of power. But my hope initially was that, you know, we could have this, um, this VDF ASIC be, uh, you know, runnable on a, on a USB stick. 
uh, that you can just plug into your computer, but it's looking more like it would be like a graphics card that you'd plug into a desktop computer. Um, if, if we want to get this, this low uh, advantage uh, between, between the hardware that we deliver and, and what, is, what can be built with, with unlimited amounts of money. Um, so the other piece of research that I've been doing is basically looking into the modular multiplication algorithms, which is the basis for the, the VDF that we're looking into. And it, it turns out that uh, this is a, a pretty long and rich uh, line of research. It, you know, it might seem innocuous, but um, it's actually non-trivial to find the optimal parallel time algorithm. And over the years, there's been uh, various approaches, you know, Montgomery, Barrett, sums of residues, sums of residues, sorry, sums of residues. Um, but there's this one specific team in Australia, it's actually a, a research lab, part of the engineering department at one of the universities, are looking into so-called residue number system. And, and that's, that's kind of nice because the basic idea is that you can take your, your 4,000-bit uh, modulus and you can, in a way, break it down into many smaller moduli. And it, it means that when you're doing the multiplication and the additions, you don't have these, these long carry chains, which, uh, which makes uh, everything complicated. So instead, you work with uh, with smaller bit, uh, bit width multiplications, and, and that's kind of nice. Um, so, you know, I'm at the early stage of, of approaching this, uh, this research lab, but uh, they, you know, from the initial discussions I've, I've had, they seem quite keen to collaborate, so that, that's nice. Uh, and then another, sorry? Oh, so as you dug into this VDF research, are you becoming more or less confident in the approach? Um, it, it varies from, from day to day. Um, I'd say, I'd say in the last few days, I've become uh, more confident. Um, and you know, part, there's, there's kind of, there's lots of, of sub problems to, to resolve. And I think, I, I think I'm confident on the crypto economics, you know, how to build a randomness beacon from a VDF. I'm also confident on uh, instantiating a specific VDF, you know, the Wisolowski construction, uh, and, and finding a suitable uh, setup, which is either trustless or trusted, or we could combine the, the various setups. Um, what was the, the biggest point of uncertainty is basically the, the, the ASIC. You know, what kind of, of budget do we need? And it, is it actually possible to, to build an ASIC which is close to optimal? And you know, a big part of that question was, can we use exotic processes that are different from CMOS silicon uh, to instantiate these ASICs? So one that, 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 that's quite famous is uh, called gallium arsenide, which is a type of uh, semiconductor with, for which you can build these, these high-frequency transistors. And then another one, which is, uh, which is more available commercially and it, it is used more and more, is called uh, silicon germanium. And for both of these, it looks like even if you had unlimited amounts of money, it would not work. Uh, and part of the reason is that the, 
the the complexity of the the ASIC, uh, you know, in terms of number of, of gates, and, and would be so high that the your your power budget would go through the roof, and um, there's there's no way you can feed enough uh, power to the, to the ASIC. So, in a way, I mean, it, it is good news that we can kind of rule out, uh, hopefully, rule out these exotic uh, processes, so that we can focus on on what's available ma- mainstream, which is the the CMOS silicon. And so now we're uh, looking into okay, um, can we actually instantiate it on a CMOS silicon chip? And it, it looks like the answer is yes. Uh, but you know, we're, we're we're carefully looking into uh, routing considerations and die area considerations and power considerations and stuff like that. And we're also looking into you know the the, the various process technologies like twenty eight nanometer. Uh, 20 nanometer, 16, etc. Um, it looks like one of the, the most state-of-the-art uh, process technologies that we could shoot for is uh, 16 nanometer by uh, TSMC. Uh, so that's that's one of the, the processes we're looking into. Um, the other one that we're looking into is 28 nanometer by um, Global Foundries. But yeah, I think um, overall, the is it is it's too early to tell. But I'd say there's there's a high chance that the project uh, can be done successfully. Uh, I'd say maybe slightly more than fifty percent chance. Um, in terms of the the amount of money that will have to be spent, it's still unclear. But I think uh, ten million or twenty million or maybe thirty million is kind of the the ballpark. Area. And so this is why, you know, the collaborations are so important. Um, and in, in addition to IPFS and Chia that are looking to do the same thing as us, there's also a new project that I learned about called Solana. And they have this uh, proof of history. Uh, and it's, you know, the whole thing is built around the VDF. So, I mean, they, they, they don't have the kind of budget that IPFS and Ethereum have, but at least they have the, the will to to see it happen and and they seem to have a very good team of engineers behind it. So potential collaboration there. Cool. Thank you. Um, I think Paul and his team have done some work on um, some research into the P2P, P2P serialization format. Um, if Paul wants to give us an update. Yeah, sure. Um, so we um, we ended up uh, kind of benching um, a f- uh, several uh, serialization formats. We looked at Captain Proto, Flat Buffers, Message Pack, Protobuf, um, Simple Serialized by Vitalik, uh, and also Python Pickle, just because it was easy. Um, we ended up getting sizes for all of these to compare. You know what their kind of on wire size is. Um, we started on timing. We didn't get anything, but we did come um, a lot closer to a conclusion. So. Uh, in terms of um, looking at the the like on wire size of an attestation record and a block um, between all of these these um, formats, uh, I think it's simple serialized pretty much wins um, hands down always uh, except for the pickle which is like crazy small but you know no, no one really wants to use pickle for P2P messaging. Um, so uh, so yeah, simple serialize is, is always the smallest. Um, I guess that's really not surprising because it gets to make all these assumptions about schema. Um, so we've been thinking um, about like what benefits you might actually get from 
from um, from using like uh, Captain Proto or something. Um, one of the things that we keep coming back to is that you're probably going to want to hash. Um, you're going to want to hash. Like if you get a message off the network, you're probably going to want to hash it pretty quickly. At least whatever you do, you're going to hash it. So um, we've been talking before about like you know these two different um, serialization formats. One is um, for for consensus style stuff. So you know, when you hash it, it, it always needs to be you know the same the same order of bytes. Uh, but if you're pushing around the network, it doesn't have to be. So um, we're kind of thinking that if you have this different byte ordering on the network and then you have to get it, then you have to move it into the hashing format and then hash it, you've probably lost any benefits you got from having that other P2P um, type. So um, given that, um, given the, the, the requirements we have for writing our own serializer is pretty small, like we only really have to push like a handful of objects around the network at this, at this time, just box and attestation records, I believe. Um, and also that even if we do find um, like another third party package that um, does do deterministic serialization, um, that if they do happen to update in the future, it's just going to be a real pain in the ass because, um, to use the French, um, you're going to have to um, uh, like ha have clients handle that. You know, like you pull something out of your database and then serialize it into the new format and push it out, give it to someone. They're going to have to like know these two different formats. So we're just thinking that it's kind of kind of difficult. Um, so from our perspective, we'd say um, stick with something like Simple Serialize. Um, we're going to just play around with it um, for the next couple of weeks, see if we can make it faster. Otherwise, um, I think we'd probably go with that. I'd be keen to hear anyone's thoughts. Um, Paul, uh, a quick question. Did you compare it to RLP? Uh, no, we didn't compare it to RLP. That's, that's a good one. And is this the simple serialized in the current Python repo? Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, not the one in the F3 search repo. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm. that sounds like reasonable arguments for me to move in the direction of simple serialized. Um, does anybody have any thoughts on it right now? I'm going to take it offline. Cool, no thoughts right now. Uh, thanks for the work. Um, I'm going to dig into it a little bit offline. Um, okay, the next thing on the agenda is this uh, beacon chain testing lang. Um, We've gone back and forth a little bit on a prismatic issue, talking about some of the pros and cons um, of this format proposed by Vitalik versus a more structured kind of like JSON-esque format or protobuf format. Um, I think that uh, I last looked before we got on this call, Vitalik was of the mind that uh, the easily writable, although maybe more difficult to read, um, format is beneficial to him and maybe to some others that might be writing these tests. Um, but the compromise might be just to have a parser that turns that into JSON or some other format. Um, I guess I lean in that direction. Um, the JSON tests are easily readable and thus more easily auditable by uh, the, the people who didn't write it. Um, I know Preston had some thoughts on this, and Preston and I, we can talk about 
some of that slot stuff right now or, or offline, but we can talk about the format first. Yeah, I think the slot conversation maybe we can do offline, but you know, I, I sort of agree with what you just said. Um, this uh, like language that Vitalik proposes, it, you know, at first it's quite bizarre, and it's kind of like you really need to think about it uh, to just try to like parse it in in your mind, like what is actually going on here, and it just makes like. When I first saw this, I thought, you know, like, is this what we're going to be ingesting in our tests? And then, like, trying to build a test out of that. Um, so maybe that was, like, the wrong assumption um, because, you know, what we landed on now is that, okay, we can – you can use, you know, Vitalik's proposal to create the test data. Like, it's uh, – how we derive the data is, like, doesn't really matter. You could have uh, – maybe you could have a GUI or you could use this thing that Vitalik proposed, like, whatever – um, if you know, so if we go with like a JSON um, sort of standard where like we don't need to build a language specific um, parser for this data, then you know it kind of makes things a lot easier. Um, a lot of the back and forth, I think, was you know in our discussion is maybe I'm misunderstanding like what we're actually testing. Uh, from the initial example, we had like some. Uh, like scenario of what the blockchain looks like and what the different forks look like. And then we wanted to decide um, like what the final head would be like given all this data. So I was a little bit confused, like why we needed um, references to other slots and things like that. Like I just didn't understand why some of that functionality is there. So maybe if you want to, or if somebody can, give like a high level of what are the goals of this test and you know, like right. what are we hoping to achieve? Yeah. So the, I mean, the goals are what is the head, what is the most recent justified block and what is the most recent finalized block at its core? This is, you know, this is a fork choice and finality test um, that brings in the particular construction of the beacon chain along with this epicless Casper. Um, so important to note and why this notion of slots is important is because when I when I make an attestation for a block at some slot, um, I'm making I'm casting an FFG vote on that block and any of its ancestor blocks that are in the previous cycle length slots. And so you can have these you can have gaps in slots where there might not be a block for a given slot in a chain. And so you have to have this notion of slots being skipped um, to really capture the full breadth of of what can happen in these fork choices? Because I might, I might, ca I might make an attestation of a block at height, uh, at slot n, and it might only cast votes for five blocks because there might be so many empty slots. Um, so that combined with these, I, I know we've talked a little bit about whether RNG has really any any use here, and and I don't think it does. It really, it's more a matter of we're dividing, we divide validators. Um, into certain slots. And so when I say validators zero through nine at a test to slot in, I'm not saying validators in this test, I'm not saying validators zero through nine from the global set. I'm saying the validators that the subset of validators that can attest to that slot. And so for the test writer, they don't have to think about is that validator with the index 10 through 11 or I mean 10 through 19 or is it the validators with index 20 through 29? They just think about you know, starting the indexing at that subset of validators, which is a committee, 
uh, for that slot. So that's kind of the general motivations. We can uh, we can talk a little bit more about that offline. I'm I'm definitely leaning in the direction of we have this we can easily we have this um, easily writable format. Um, we'll just we can make a Python script that outputs some JSON, and we as a community can come around a, a JSON standard that can serve for a global set of tests. A quick uh, question on on the uh, the tester like selection for slots like when when you're specifying you know um, validator zero through nine for that selected slot like how do we know what the global index of validators are actually being selected and how do we keep that consistent across uh, right test so implementations? so in because because in this testing link at least currently. There is no notion of these are all equal weighted validators. Um, it doesn't really matter. So you can have your shuffling as being non-shuffled. So you know you just slice your validator set and apply them to um, your slots accordingly. You know the zero slice goes to the zero slot. You slice it, slice it by the by the cycle length um, with whatever shuffling you choose. Um, shuffling likely will reset on these dynasty changes, but we don't have that currently spec'd and that even if you reshuffled, um, still the shuffling doesn't really matter in the context of this test because, uh, you know, you Do can Do you imagine. think it would be a problem if the, like the scenarios would be different either like on each test run or for each um, client if they're not selecting the same global indexes? Um, well, the, in the um, it does it will not matter as long as those validators have the same weight. It matters that you keep them where you put them, right? So if somebody you're not you're not reshuffling them in between you know blocks or slots, um, but because these are all equal weight validators, you just need to know that you know whatever the zeroth validator means locally that the zeroth validator voted um, from the global set. Uh, so you still need, you need to, when you're summing up votes, you do have to keep think about the global validators, um, but you don't care who they are as long as you're not moving them around. Does that make sense? I mean, a lot of this is simplified by the fact that um, everyone's equal weight. Uh, one thing regarding uh, the uh, testing language, uh, currently there are two issues, one in uh, the Ethereum Beacon Chain repo and one in the Prismatic Lab repos. Uh, just to make sure, uh, should the discussion go into the Prismatic, uh, Prismatic Lab repo? Because uh, uh, in the last two responses by uh, Vitalik and Preston were there. And uh, second thing, uh, the, the only issue I have with JSON is that it doesn't support comments. And I think uh, it's important uh, for research and to, or to comment uh, in or out uh, quickly uh, tests uh, that uh, the testing lang uh, support comments. So um, of a passable uh, text format, I think uh, either uh, 2ML or YAML uh, are also uh, good. Uh, and uh, they have very wide language support.
Yeah, um, I agree with that. Like, uh, I, I guess that's why I was leaning towards um, protobuf text format, but protobuf text formats actually like pretty awful to write and read. So like YAML or or something similar would be ideal. Yeah, um, I agree. Oh, go on. Yes, sir. I, I agree, and we, uh, that comments are very worthwhile. So, um, Gamal or one of these others probably makes more sense. Mikhail? Um, I just wanted to say that uh, Danny just mentioned that uh, it would be convenient to write maybe a Python script or just to read that language. And so we can add an output in any formats like JSON, YAML, maybe some, something else. Yep. Right, but I think we want to we want to come up with a standard because it, it, sooner or later we're going to have a shared test suite, um, and so we want to have a standard format that we're all um, comfortable reading from. Mm. Okay, I see, but I don't see any problems with uh, having two formats like. But but anyway, it doesn't matter. YAML or JSON. As for me, so, yeah. Okay. Um, and in terms of where the conversation, I I think we'll probably be. Well, I, I'll probably be talking on the prismatic one just because that's where we've been conducting some of the conversations. So follow follow that one, and um, we'll try to hone in on some of these decisions next week or so. Cool. Let me see what is next. Um, cool. There's been a lot of questions on V21 around some of the stuff around attestations and some stuff around shuffling. And, I, and I, we've talked a lot on the Gitter, so we might not uh, have some stuff to talk about right now. But if anyone has just like general questions on V21 that have come up that you want to discuss in person, um, now's a good time. Yeah, I had a question when I was thinking about this the other day. Um, just about so say say you have a scenario right where you have um, you got a cycle length of length of ten. Um, so you're you're a block forty. You're redoing your crystallized state. You look at your shuffling. Um, when you do your shuffling, does that apply it to blocks say like um, forty to forty nine, or does that apply to blocks fifty from fifty nine? I guess another way to ask it is: Is there like a look ahead here? Um, currently, the shuffling is not handled in the spec at all, so nothing's reshuffled because no, the validators aren't changing. And we're just not handling the RNG. Um, reshuffling is likely going to occur on um, some multiple of cycle length. So that's a dynasty change. Is when you do some of these more, um, you, it, you, you do dynasty changes. It's kind of a subset or extra stuff on a state update. Um, and dynasty changes when you bring some new validators in and out. Um, it's also when you do recompute shuffling and some other stuff. Um, so some multiple of cycle length, and if finalization has occurred, then likely that will be the the um, trigger for a for a reshuffling. And at that point, yeah, you'd have you'd immediately have your reshuffling um, because because because. You're ready to move 
for, you're ready to, you've, you've finalized and you've brought in new people. You've now have kind of this notion of a new validator set, although you still have some overlap, still have majority overlap, but you have this notion of like, here's our new validator set. What's our shuffling? Let's begin finalizing stuff. Okay. Thanks. Um, this is Terrence from Chris Matthew Lab. Um, I have a question regarding um, if let's say you receive an incoming block and let's say if there's a few bad attestation that's within the block, what do you do with the block? Do you like, do you, do you just like ignore the block? Bad attestations in what respect? Uh, malformatted? Um, uh, let's say uh, that's probably just a bad signature or like... Um, yeah, just... yeah, that's, that's an invalid block and should be discarded. Okay, I see. Yeah, like if they... In, a bad I mean, if you have a bad or... signature... Yeah. What was that? Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I think you're about to say there isn't actually a signature within that block. Um, so they might not... Yeah, so... The attestations might have a bad signature. You might not be able to verify the signature, but they also might be, they, maybe they include attestations for a slot in the future or something like that. What were you going to say, Justin? I was going to say, if you have uh, one of the votes with a bad uh, signature, then it's going to pollute the whole aggregated signature. Mm. So if you have a thousand people voting and even just one bad signature, then the whole thing was, the whole signature is going to fail. So it doesn't really make sense to have a single signature, which is wrong. Well, but a single attestation could fail the signature. So the block producer should have known that and not included it and not broadcast it um, unless they were trying to spam or something like that. But it, but it, you know, it's, it's like having someone produce a proof of work block that didn't have an acceptable difficulty. Like it's discarded. Okay. Got it. I mean, that, that is that needs to be considered from a denial of service point of view because, you know, proof of work is very easy to check, uh, whereas these signatures might be more heavy. And so if you have multiple signatures per block and, you know, just the, the last one is invalid, then it's possible that you spend, you know, some time checking everything and then at the very end have something failing. Um, basically, proof of work is not so easy to check uh, if you don't have a pre-calculated data set. I mean that it takes time to calculate data set and check the block. And it's right. not oh, a little amount of time. In the sense that you, you could put, you could have a correct proof of work, but you could have bad data at the end of the calculation. Like bad transaction data, Mikhail. Um, yeah, I see. Yep. Um, yeah, Justin, I, 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 I mean the proof of work. Uh, uh, for example, if hash is not so, you know, like it's much easier to validate a transaction like than validate a block in terms of calculations. So uh, I, I don't have a numbers of uh, like. Uh, BLS signature verification or attestation verification, but I, th I think that should compare to proof of work uh, verification. If uh, we calculate, if we if we take into account that it takes time to, to calculate the data data set, 
So uh, BLS uh, signature verification should take on the order of milliseconds, like two, three milliseconds, that kind of thing. And so if you have um, you know, 64 crosslinks, or you know, then just multiply that um, by a few milliseconds. It's possible if you use multiple cores that that, that will go down, but yeah, maybe maybe a hundred milliseconds is like the worst case. So Justin, we we talked about the like a Dfinity style um, zero knowledge proofs to be privileged actors in the network a little bit last week as um, you know one way to mitigate. Uh, kind of add DOS protection. Um, I know you were the one that had originally told me about that. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I was meaning to dig in a little bit the last two weeks and I did not have time to do that. Yeah, I mean, I I learned about it through uh, by going to a Definity meetup. And from what I understand, they're actually going to write a, a white paper specific on the, the pit for networking. Uh, and you know, it seems that Definity has done a lot of innovation on the P2P networking. So, not only have they written their P2P library from scratch, you know, not using the P2P or IPFS uh, in any way, um, they also have, uh, as I understand, these zero knowledge proofs uh, to, to to prove that you're uh, a privileged actor. But I think they're also uh, innovating on. Uh, network relay policies and, and topologies and stuff like that. So I'm, at this point, I'm, I'm mostly speculating. But uh, as I understand, uh, they want to release uh, seven or eight white papers. And they've only released one right now on the consensus. And I, as I understand, also, the, the next one will be on the peer-to-peer -peer networking. So I guess keep an eye out for that. Um, any other V21 questions? I guess uh, just going back to what Terence was asking before, I guess say you get like halfway through the attestations of a block and you find an invalid one, it's probably worth hanging on to the other attestations that you did find in that block though. Would you agree, Danny? Um, if you haven't seen them yet and they're valid, they're probably worth putting into your database um, for to add to your fork choice rule and for um, potential inclusion if you're a proposer. Um, cool. You know, it's, it, you would likely be seeing these attestations be coming in outside of blocks, um, but that might be a worthwhile optimization um, can, depending on what we start seeing in the wild. Thank you. Cool. The next thing we have is um, practical details of random beacon and committee selection. Um, Nakara, you proposed that, right? Can you give us some thoughts on what you're thinking? Um, so right now we've been mainly focusing our discussion on P2P serialization and how the P2P layer will um, look like, um, which I think ties into this a little. Um, so given that um, you kind of know a little bit what that looks like what would the uh how would the nodes actually come to agreement on um the random number so i know that they're using that justin had proposed in a in a different talk 
um, using Randau and then inserting the results of the Randau into VDF. So I was just wondering how would that look like in, in practice from an implementation point of view? And um, community selection is because the spec mentions committees, but has no um, details on how that would work. My initial thoughts in community selection are that using the random number from the beacon, we could uh, potentially use that as a seed into some random sampling method and then randomly sample nodes for community selection. Um, those are my initial thoughts for now. Um, does anybody have any input? I'll answer kind? the second part and then Justin can answer the first part. Um, so the second part, we have this uh, field in crystallized states called indices for slots. It's an array of arrays. Um, and so it's the length, cycle length, or it might be cycle length. No, I think it's cycle length. And so you have, a, you have an array for each uh, slot and that array is um, a shard and committee, or an array of shard and committee objects. And so a shard and committee object has the um, committee inside of it. And this is all an output of get new shuffling, which currently is not is only used I think the beginning to seed this entire thing, but would be used on the dynasty changes and when you have a new RNG. So the get new shuffling shuffles validators and also puts them into committees. Um, and committees are at, at are assigned to certain slot heights and are assigned to certain shards. Um, and so it, it is happening in the spec. And, and so take a look at get new shuffling and take a look at shard and committee object, and they all get placed into the indices for slots array. Um, that said, we're not really doing much, re we're not really doing reshuffling at the time in the spec. Um, we're just kind of doing an initial shuffling and, and placing people statically. Um, if Justin wants to give some more concrete details on what like a Randau plus VDF would look like in production. Right. Uh, so I actually uh, linked to some slides that I prepared for EDF Day. Um, and there's some diagrams there which might clarify what's going on. So um, basically, you have the, the Randall reveal period, and that's pretty standard in the sense that uh, at every slot, you have a block producer and if create uh, a block which gets included on chain, then that block will also have a Randall review. And then once you get at the end of a certain epoch, you know, let's call it an epoch, uh, say uh, 100 slots, then you, you XOR all the reveals and then you get your, your Randall number. And you know, that Randall number that is like a weak source of entropy in the sense that it could be biased by some of the last revealers, some of the last basically block producers. And then you, you, you take that uh, Randall output and you feed it as an input to the VDF. And then basically there's, there's several things going on. Uh, so if, if you look at, uh, for example, slide 11, there's going to be the, the, this notion of a, a target delay. So um, the, the protocol is going to have a, a difficulty adjustment scheme, which goes, goes up and down uh, according to, to, to the performance of, of the network. And the, the, the target delay is going to be what the, the difficulty targets. So 
let's say that's going to be 10 minutes. And at some point, the, the block producer, uh, well, some block producer somewhere is going to find the, uh, the output of the VDF with a proof that it is the correct output, and he's going to include that on-chain. And when this inc uh, on-chain inclusion uh, happens, it either happens before the target delay or after the target delay, and the difficulty is adjusted accordingly. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of practical things um, to consider, um, you know, we, we need to put a bound on, uh, you know, how, how long the, the VDF evaluation could take so um, even though we're targeting 10 minutes, you know, it's possible that in, in the worst case scenario, it could take 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And so that, that's something to, to take into account. Um, and then another thing to take into account is when it is, um, you know, revealed off-chain, you know, broadcasted and gossiped to the whole network, it still needs to be included on-chain. And... And so we have the, the notion of, of an inclusion buffer on, on, on slide 13. And, you know, you know that, that, those are most of the, 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 the practical uh, considerations from implementation. You know, it, it, it is a fairly simple, simple protocol. I guess, you know, some of the subtleties that, that you want to understand is, is from a, a protocol designer point of view, you know, one of the, the, the questions is how, how long do you sh should the evaluation period, you know, what is the worst case evaluation period? And it, it turns out that it's, it's on the order of, of a, a squared, where A is like the, the maximal advantage that an attacker can have. And the reason is that, that if an attacker ramps up the with, with uh, you know, hardware, which is, let's say, twice as fast to everyone else, then... Uh, because uh, to prevent grinding, you, you have the uh, you have your your evaluation period needs to be at least of, on the order of, of A, and if 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 the attacker suddenly goes offline, then everyone needs to catch up and they're A times slower, so you get a factor of A squared, that kind of thing. Um, you know, on, on on slide sixteen, I have uh, you know how how the incentivization works. Uh, with uh, the idea of having two parallel VDFs, one on the public seed and and the second one on the uh, public seed XORed with the the public key, and that gives you a way to to basically incentivize well attach the the VDF to a specific public key, which can't be um, stolen. Um, the the thing is that we we probably have a better construction for this now. This is something that I mentioned. Uh, you know, that happened during uh, this, this research event where we found a way to do so-called watermarking, where you, in the, in the proof of the primary VDF, you kind of construct a special proof which is linked to a specific uh, public key. Right. So, uh, you know, from an from a implementer's perspective, there's going to be some details added to the spec that are... Um, there'll be probably another field and a block where people can um, include a VDF output. There will be some rules about um, assessing whether the VTF, VDF output is valid, like if it's from the correct uh, cycle or epoch and whether it has uh, the, if, whether it's, it's satisfying a solution to the expected 
input, which would be some of the Randall XORs. Um, and then plus that, you know, that when, a, when an output is included in a block, that can serve as a seed of randomness, and there will be rules around which seed of randomness and when to use that seed of randomness to reshuffle things. Um, you know, and then there's a couple of things on recalculating difficulty, but that's more of um, that's and you know, recalculating difficulty for future videos. So not terribly complicated, kind of like handling attestations, but on just rarely handling this like extra input to blocks um, and validity around that, and then exposing it to the other part of your processes that need the RNG. Um, the next thing on the list is uh, practical VDF implementations. I think Justin um, kind of handled that in his research update, talking about the two primary ones with the um, RSA modulus, moduli. Um, are there any other questions around that right now? Um, not really. Uh, is there any um, results from the VDF meetup that are public are being made public? Uh, so the main set of results um, are actually relevant to Benjamin uh, Wotolowski's paper. And Benjamin uh, told me that he was going to update his paper, which is on ePrint. Um, and it's possible he's already done it. I, I haven't checked. Uh, but I expect it to be some sort of uh, appendix to, to his uh, paper. Cool, if you can check or, or share the link, that would be helpful. Yeah, I'll share the link right now. Cool. Um, the next thing is uh, discussion of some of the cross-strike communication uh, proposals, asynchronous and synchronous. Um, Maybe Casey wants to give us an update on maybe the, the recent proposal from Vitalik. I know you're on that thread. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, it was a really nice post from Vitalik on my favorite topic. Uh, there's still two main issues, I feel like. One, one I think we have a good answer to, which is so the first concern is usually when people propose um, synchronous cross shard, a synchronous cross shard transaction protocol, the concern has been that the state execution gadget won't be able to keep up if there's you know too much, if it requires too too many round too much uh, network communication and too much latency, then state execution can't keep up with. Um, the block proposals happening at the at the data the data the data layer, um, but the and the second issue uh, that I'm warning about, which I left a a question in the thread, um, I guess it, it it doesn't have to do even strictly with um, with cro with cross shard transactions, but even just the the phase one um a naive phase one design itself treats uh data blobs as just generic so they don't 
you know, contain any transactions and there's no distinguishing between if data blobs have any useful data or if they're just um, junk. So you know, what I'm wondering about is if in the naive phase one design, is there, is it, is it considered a problem if, uh, if validators who are proposing blocks just stuff the data with, with junk? If you get my question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know if I know the answer. <laughs> um, Xiaowei, I know, has thought more about blobs than I. Uh, do you have any thoughts, Xiaowei? Mm, well, I think, yes, it's possible that the block will be full of junk. But um, I know the, the application that Vitalik my want uh, most is the 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 like um, decentralized Twitter. That kind of application could be run on the phase one sharding chains. But yeah, so far the phase one application might be very limited. So Casey, but isn't that the kind of the point? Is that it can just be filled with junk? And that there's no structure. Um, well, <laughs> the problem that comes is then, you know, how do you, if if validators, you know, malicious validators could could uh, stuff it with junk, and you know, there would be no room left for for anything useful like like tweets or uh, you know transactions or plasma data or anything. I mean, if, if, um, if validators can just stuff it with junk, then, uh, what disincentivizes validators or what incentivizes validators to, uh, include useful data. Isn't, isn't the move when you do formalize the execution layer, the move is to move to more structured blocks. Um, this is a little bit out of the scope of what I'm, uh, my understanding of the phases. So, my my understanding was that you have data blobs at the beginning and then move to more structured blocks um, as you formalize the execution layer in phase two or three or whatever phase. Um, yeah, I guess from my perspective, it's the problem is that um, it, I mean it's an easy you know it's easy to design a protocol you know an execution protocol if you assume that the data blobs are useful. But it gets harder um, if you allow, you know, if it's possible for validators to stuff the shard blocks with with spam, you know, useless data blobs. Um, and it's not clear how much of a problem that is, or or uh, what ways there are to um, prevent that from happening. Right. I, I remember seeing something somewhere, the notion of maybe flagging blobs as to when we add execution layer, flagging, flagging blobs with a bit um, to say whether they're part of, whether they're just data or whether they're part of uh, the transaction execution layer. Um, again, I've read some stuff about this, but it's not something that's in the forefront of my mind. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. So from the point of view of uh, sharding phase one, you know, um, 
think we want every block to be the, the, the same size. And so in that sense, every single block will be 100% filled with junk. And by filled with, with junk, I mean that, you know, the, they will not be interpreted by the EVM once we launch the EVM. So everything will be ignored. And what, you know, what goes into the blocks is ignored um, until we launch the EVM. And then when we do launch the EVM, only the, the new blocks uh, will be interpreted for state. So in that sense, every, it will be 100% junk. Um, in terms of what disincentivizes, uh, you know, proposers from just filling the blocks with, with, with junk, well, it's the exact same answer as with Bitcoin and Ethereum. Is like opportunity, opportunity cost on, on loss revenue from the execution fees and, and, and the gas. Um, now, I guess, you know, it, it, maybe the question is, what is the gas mechanism prior to having an EVM? Well, it, it is possible that you can have out-of-band fees uh, to incentivize the inclusion of, of things. So, you know, you could imagine, for example, a, uh, a plasma chain which, uh, for which you can, you can pay uh, the next proposer to include a tweet, uh, and that payment would happen through the plasma chain. Um, so even though there's no concept of gas, and from the point of view of the EVM, it's all, it's all junk, um, you have achieved something useful. Okay, then. So it sounds like everything's just up in the air uh, still, which is, which is yeah, what I thought. So that's um, good to know. <laughs> so, but, there, but when you add when you add a, an execution layer, when you add a VM, you do move to the notion of like block validity in terms of the VM. So even if you do have some of the block, you can carve out some of the block for data and rather than transaction transactions. If you have part, a portion of the block that's carved out for the VM, it has to conform to the VM rules or VM validity, right? Or else the block will be discarded if there's an enshrined VM. So no, no blocks will well, only unavailable blocks are discarded. So by unavailable, I mean um, a block for for which, you know, there's, well, basically, I mean, uh, basically a block header for which there's no uh, block body which hashes to, to the, the block header. And, and the block body needs to be of the, the exact right size. So let's say 100 kilobytes. Um, and if, if your block is available, then it will be valid. What might not be valid is going to be the, the blobs in, inside. But there's, for, there's no way to, you know, that, that, that's part of the, the effort that we've put into the blob serialization is that um, every, every block will serialize, uh, you know, deterministically and, and without, uh, without exception, without throwing an error to uh, a, list, a list of blobs. Um, and then when, once the EVM is, is implemented, uh, then some of these blobs will, be, will become transactions and, and, and run in, in the, the default execution engine. But of course, you know, one of the things that was mentioned in, in Vitalik's blog post is the idea of an alternative execution engine or a layer two execution engine. And in, in, in that respect, you don't, you, 
the blobs don't need to convert it to transactions. They can convert into so-called alt transactions, which, um, you know, from the point of view of the, the, the default execution engine are, are junk, but actually they provide real value for the user. Uh, and, you know, this alternative execution engine would come with its, with its own uh, incentivization scheme. Cool. So there, there is a clean separation between uh, phase one and uh, phase, the phase one data layer and the phase two execution layer. So phase one has no gas rewards. It only has um, block rewards, but but no no transaction fee or gas mechanics. So the only the incentive for proposing blocks is to earn a a block reward, but not necessarily a, a gas fee. Yeah, so if you talk about, strictly speaking, layer one in terms of enshrined infrastructure, that, that's absolutely correct. And that's something, you know, that's that's one part of the design that just hasn't changed for months, like over six months, that's or even like close to a year. It's, it's been like that. A very clean separation between layer one and layer two. Um, yeah. It, but, you know, even though there's no layer one incentivization scheme, you, you definitely can have layer two incentivization schemes. And in which case, it would be against uh, rational proposers to, you know, have blocks which are all zeros, for example. Yeah, I suppose that's the same level of uh, freedom for for validators or, or block proposers as with the current Ethereum, because they can, you know, there's nothing that stops validators from proposing empty blocks or from including a bunch of transactions that um, have a gas price of, of zero. So, yeah, it seems it's essentially the same, the same level of uh, freedom in terms of what, what data blobs or what transactions they can include. Yeah, it's the same. Cool. And there's okay, a thanks. lot. Oh, go on. <laughs> no, I just said thanks. All right, cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more around cross-shard communication. Um, I'm going to table the rest of the potential conversation for now um, and, you know, ask questions when we get her and we can bring it up next time. Um, it's a little bit, you know, we have some people like Casey who are thinking about this a lot, um, but in terms of practical beacon chain implementation, it's a little bit... Um, you know, in the future. Uh, uh, the next question, the next potential topic was um, talking about the proof of custody implementation and whether that part of the spec has been finalized. Um, and I think <clears throat> I noticed in some of the channels there was maybe a little bit of confusion about uh, the proof of custody and what it's in relation to. Um, in terms of the beacon chain, uh, you know, just the beacon chain, not the shard chains, there is no, there's no uh, notion of proof of custody. Proof of custody comes in with the building of the shard chain. Um, but I think Terrence brought that up. Do you have further questions or thoughts? Yeah. Um, Justin's a local uh, expert on that. Because from the research perspective, I've seen a few research threads that's floating around. and But from the spec-wise, I haven't seen that much finalized spec in terms of proof of custody. So I'm wondering, is it because we haven't started really messing around with the shard chain yet? That's why there hasn't been like a spec on it. 
Yes, that's my understanding. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I should just sit down and, and try to, to spec it. Um, one of the nice things is that uh, from a research perspective, there, there isn't that much more we want to go into. So, you know, the, 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 the one-bit custody uh, scheme is, you know, is, is, is it, it's optimal. You know, it feels optimal. I, I can't necessarily prove it, but I, I, I don't see how it, it could be improved, at least in, in terms of the, the overhead um, to, the, to the beacon chain. Um, you know, one area where uh, there is some kind of ambiguity as to how it could be implemented is in the challenge game. Uh, my philosophy there is um, it doesn't matter if the challenge game is suboptimal in the sense that the messages are slightly longer or they're slightly more rounds or, or you know, it just... It's, the, the, the reason is that it... <sighs> The mere existence of this uh, challenge mechanism should uh, disincentivize anyone from uh, putting in incorrect custody bits. Um, and the reason is that you know you, you you stand to win almost nothing. You, you save a little bit of bandwidth and a little bit of computation by putting the custody bit at random, uh, but you stand to lose thirty two ETH. Um, by putting a wrong custody bit. So um, my philosophy is just to have a challenge game which is based on a, a single uh, a single challenge uh, message and a single response message uh, and, and, and try and keep it as simple as possible simply because I don't expect it to be triggered very often. And other than the uh, the details of the challenge game, you know, there's a question around which which hash function do we want to use for the merkleization, and um, you know, this this it's still up in the air what we, what we want to use here. One of the the main questions is, uh, do we want to use a stock friendly function, and if so, which one? Um, I I am personally a proponent of of having a stock friendly function. And one of the, the well, we'll have two candidates. Uh, one is uh, called MIMIC, M-I-M-C, and the other one is based on, on AES. But um, Starkware, who we, we've given a, a very large grant, will be producing a report uh, fairly soon and, and making it public and you know, encouraging um, feedback on that report where they will make suggestions as to what would be a stock friendly hash functions and at that point I think we'll be able to to make a decision there's also you know some parameterization around uh, how long the the challenge periods should last and how long the uh, the, the secrecy period should last you know how long you should keep your secret secret and that kind of thing but these are mainly parameterizations they don't really uh, affect the, the design that much. And in terms of the uh, the beacon chain spec, there's no stubs currently for the 
individual validators proof of custody or for the slashing conditions. Um, they're just noted at the bottom. Um, but either either before we launched the initial version, we would at least have stubs there, or we would put them in, um, you know, on some sub subsequent fork. Yeah, I mean, if we do have a custody bit, you know, it would make sense to just set it to zero all the time uh, until we actually have uh, shard data. Right, kind of so like how we're going to have some set hash or function to hash for the shard block hash in the crosslinks currently. Right. Right. <clears throat> um, all right, cool. The last thing... So I've kind of, I don't think I got a response from everyone, um, but in some of my discussions, it started to seem like the, the 26th was kind of a, an unreasonable ask to get people to prog early um, as DevCon starts the 30th. Um, I am looking into whether we can secure a space on the 29th rather um, for like a, you know, good, good, chunk of the day starting in the morning through the mid-afternoon um, that would be around the conference center. And so I think it, it would be a little bit more reasonable in terms of getting people there. Um, I know there's some conflict with status, but I hope that they can still have uh, some representation. Um, not finalized yet, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check into that. And hopefully on Monday, I can give you an answer whether we're going to be doing um, Monday, Tuesday, whether we're going to be doing a meetup on the 29th. Cool. Um, any anything else anybody wants to talk about um, before we close this meeting? We have a few minutes left. Um, I'd just like to note that uh, I'm still uh, not really happy with the proof of custody from the uh, decentralized uh, staking pool's point of view, but uh, you guys are already familiar with that, so yeah. Right. Can you remind us? So, so my my um, my issue with it um, is that I the I, I, don't, I, I don't see a mechanism that allows you to distribute this secret of the people or some way that you can in a trustless manner um, uh, uh, allow no single person to have access to the entire. Uh, secret which allows you to compromise everyone's um, or basically everyone in the pool slashed um, and you can't really compute any of this stuff anyways via um, uh, multi-part confirmation you can't compute the uh, Merkle tree um, between all of the nodes I see Any proposed solution? Nothing off the top of my head, at least. I mean, th th there was one issue around, um, you know, the the hash chain and the hash on you, and where um, it's that's difficult to do in the in the in the pooled context. I think the the solution there is just to to forget about the the hash on you and have separate commitments and reveals there. And then um, 
in terms of building the uh, the proof of custody with the, all the hashing, um, you know, the, this, right. So I, I, are you saying that it, 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 it right. No. So, um, so the one thing for, if the, uh, the degree to which you get slashed is, is minimal for exposing your, your secret in the, the, the proof of custody, uh, if it's if it's minimal or well, just relatively small, then I can internal to my pool uh, assign basically every pool member that uh, uh, they have a different secret for whatever time. And uh, if your secret is exposed before the appointed time, I can punish that individual within my pool, provided that that individual share greater than the punishment that will be received. And I assume it's some pollen uh, of the number of people being. Uh, punished at a given time, but if it's on average, um, the, the order of that is relatively small, then that places a size limit on the amount of uh, each person in the pool. Right. Um, yeah, I I need to think about it more. I don't have a solution. Right. Cool. Thanks. Just to keep thinking about it is so. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> All right, cool guys. Uh, we're at the hour and a half mark. Um, generally, I think really productive meeting. Um, stay in touch on the getter, ask questions. I know there's been kind of a really good, lively discussion recently. Um, and we'll hone in on some of these uh, details that we discussed over the next couple of weeks. Um, thank you. So the core dev calls got a little bit off. They ended up, they did a meeting last week and they're doing a meeting this week. So they're doing a meeting tomorrow. Um, I don't think we have a ton of overlap um, in the members of the two the people that attend both meetings. But um, before I schedule whether this call, when this call is going to be, I'm going to wait and see what the core dev calls call does tomorrow. Whether it's going to do like another meeting next week or whatever, and, and we'll try to plan around that. Um, but I'll uh, I'll early next week I'll have the call scheduled for when the next one is. Um, really appreciate everyone coming out. Uh, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.